creating cultural awareness and understanding. This is Culture Click. Culture Click is written and produced by KQAL FM on the campus of Winona State University. It's time to get your geek on. Today on Culture Click, we go once again to Nerd Night Winona at Ed's No Name Bar. This time around, we hear from Nathan Moore, physics professor at Winona State University. In this Nerd Night talk, Nathan poses the question, why does school lunch work better than school? I'm Bill Stoneberg with Nathan Moore on Culture Click. So I am Nathan Moore. Uh, I've taught at, at uh, uh, I've taught 13th grade for about 20 years. Um, and in kindergarten teacher years, that's about five years. So I don't really know what I'm talking about. Two guys in England, Philip Aidy and Michael Scheer, they surveyed like roughly 14,000 children in the 1970s to see how kids solved this problem. And how kids solved the problem of like, you've got a glass filled with liquid and you tip it diagonal. What does it look like? What does the liquid do when you tip it diagonal? So depending on how old a child is, how they solve problems, they'll draw all kinds of different pictures. Some of them will say, oh yeah, the water wants to go over, and you can actually see that in the way they draw it. So these all map to levels. If you know anything about educational psychology, you might have heard of Piaget. Um, so these are Piagetian levels. And so as kids grow, they on average draw a more mature picture. They can hold something you know, more sophisticated in their head. Um, but the spread is huge. It's huge. Um, so the spread from like the fifth percentile to the 95th percentile, if you think about like a distribution, is just enormous in this ability to solve problems, in this ability to like have a picture of the world in your head. Um, and I think this is really related to trees. So, <clears throat> well, um, you can use trees as a weather record. If you take cores out of like old castles and churches and um, other places in England, you can have a record of what the weather was like year to year to year. Because in good years, the trees grow a lot. So the light spot in a tree ring is all of the spring flush, right? All of that growth in the spring. The cells are huge. At the late summer, there's not a lot of moisture. Everything's dying. So the cells are tiny. And so this periodic flush, tiny, flush, tiny growth produces tree rings. And um, if a tree is planted this year and a tree is planted 20 years ago, they'll both experience the same weather, but there'll be an offset, a time offset. And so you can use a good year. Oh, you can use a good year and a good year, a good year and a good year, and you can match good years. And so you can get this really long, like thousands of years, weather record. Like when were the good years and when were the bad years? What trees should you use? The ones that really need the rain. This tree grows great every year. Don't use it because it won't tell you about the weather. This tree only grows if it rains. Okay, so here's another graph. And I've got all these different threads. I think they all tell the same story. So this is a graph. If you have children, you may have seen this. As the child gets older, they get taller. The solid red not line is normal. And then you have percentiles, like your child is at the 55th percentile. Congratulations, you fed her. 
Um, here's a black line. This is a child that seemed a little bit smaller than normal, but then she was really tiny. They took her to the doctor. Oh, it turns out her thyroid isn't working right. So you give her a pill, her thyroid starts working again, and she goes back to normal. Right? So you have these distributions. You have a really important factor. Here's another story. I think this story is similar. How tall are men on average? As time goes on, they get taller. It's not a pill that stimulates your thyroid if you're a man, right? My thyroid works fine, I think. What matters? What do you think impacted the average height of a man? Diet. When did industrial agriculture arise? Right here, right? Right after World War II, you had all these amazing chemicals that pushed food yields through the roof, and suddenly you didn't lose seven children, right, in, in your family. Have you ever been to a cemetery that's 200 years old? It's just filled with tragedy. But that's not how the world is right now. Okay, the same story. Again, um, England and Ireland are right next to each other. If you know your history, 1840 was the political potato famine. Right? So there's horrible weather for like three years, and there was a pest, killed all the potato plants. Now, Ireland, their main crop was oats to feed the English horses. But Ireland was a territory in the same way that Puerto Rico is a territory. They weren't sovereign over their own agriculture. And so it, the, there were actually two potato famines, if you read about it. But in 1840, the Irish had to you know, ship all of their oats, which you can eat, to England to feed their horses. And look... 170 years later, the population still hasn't recovered. So why does school lunch work? If you don't eat, you die. And it's pretty easy in modern America to provide food to people. So school lunch works great. It does. And so here's to me a sign that school lunch works really well. Look at how tightly that distribution is arranged. Almost all four-year-olds, almost all 10-year-olds are about the same age. I know a male who reasons at 2B. So his house on the side of the mountain looks like this. How old is he? I know a male who's four feet tall. How old is he? To me, this is the house. No, this is the pine tree in the plain. It rains every year, but it doesn't matter because the pine tree has all these resources. It really does well. On the other side, here is the pine tree that's growing out of a crack on the side of the bluff. And it only grows if there's rain. So, I don't think school works. And I say that based on the data. This is very offensive. I liked school. If school worked, you wouldn't have this spread. This is very inflammatory. I don't know how to fix it. But I think that if school worked, this would be tightly distributed in the same way that school lunch works. So that's the backstory. I've got another story to tell. What are we designed to do? Because maybe if we think about what we're designed to do, we can think about how school could fit into that design in the same way that we are designed to eat. If we don't eat, we die. And school lunch works awesome because it matches that need. So, uh, people are too complicated. What is a bird designed to do? Why, Carl? 
what about this skeleton tells you that a bird is designed to fly? If you were a duck, where would your breastbone end? Here? And you would have giant breast muscles so that you could flap and lift yourself. Look at the breastbone on this duck. Look at how big it is. Ducks have huge breast muscles because they fly. They have to. If you look at the skeleton, you can tell. Actually, the wishbone, I think it keeps the duck's chest from collapsing when it flies because there's so much power in a duck. What is a frog designed to do? Look at the skeleton. Look at these legs. These legs are designed to jump. Like It would be astonishing if frogs didn't jump. Look at their legs. What are cows designed to do? Here's one. I think cows are biodiesel factories with legs. What do cows do? They eat grass, cellulose. What do cows make? Cholesterol, which is basically biodiesel. And that's all made actually by bacteria. I know it's not biodiesel, it's a triglyceride. Come on. But you could probably, okay, so anyway. So cows have all of these bacteria inside of them. If you gave a cow antibiotics, would it die? Are there any farmers in the room? Oh, good. We're not encumbered by knowledge. So cows, all ruminants, they have this giant bag inside of them, and the bacteria in the bag turns that cellulose into protein and fat. Anyway, so what are we designed to do? So I have two stories. Find your, find your bicep. Find your bicep, right, it's this muscle. I have college students that like to do this, right? They just sit in class and do this for hours. You know. So where does your bicep end? Like, where does it attach? It doesn't attach at your elbow. It attaches maybe an inch away. The other end of your bicep attaches up here. So um, in physics, one of the things we talk about is torque. Torque is a rotational force. So a radius times a force is torque. So here is your bicep pulling up an inch away from your elbow. Here's a gallon of milk that you're holding 14 inches away from your elbow. The radius times the force is equal to the radius times the force. That's how you hold stuff, right? Those two torques balance. So the radius times the force is 112 inch pounds for the milk. The radius times the force is one inch times the tension of your bicep. So when you hold a gallon of milk in your hand full, there's 110 pounds of tension in your bicep. If you're holding a five-gallon pail of water in your hand, like from the handle, there's like 500 pounds of tension in your arm muscle. Why in the world are we built that way? We're built that way on purpose, right? By God, by all evolution. We're built that way on purpose. Why? What does that allow you to do? So, um, so if you're an engineer, you study levers. And your arm is a third-class lever. Your bicep contracts by maybe 10%, maybe a couple of inches. Now look, my hand is down here. My hand is up here. My hand moved roughly 30 inches. My bicep moved roughly an inch, two inches. Look at this. My arm. I can scratch the back of my head. I can pull up my pants. If I have sheep, I can reach inside of the sheep and I can pull out a lamb that's born breech. I can make fishing poles. I can graft apple trees. I can hold my children. Look at these amazing things that your arms can do. 
Okay, your calf, your calf muscle is a first-class lever. Look at the amazing thing your calf muscle can let you do. It's not very amazing compared to what your hands can do. So here's a claim. Our arms, our fingers, our wrists, we are made to build tools. We are made to solve problems. We're made to create things. Every culture in the world does this. We're made to do this. It is our function. Okay, here's something else that I think we're made to do. Your, your brain is sized to keep track of about 150 people, like socially. And that's on purpose, maybe. Um, if you're out living off the land by yourself in Alaska, on the second night, you'll get really tired, fall asleep, and be eaten by a bear. This is what will happen to you. But if you have a friend, your friend can stay awake and keep the fire going, and then the bear won't come and eat you. If you're building a barn and you want to lift this side of the barn, it weighs 3,000 pounds. If you have 30 friends, you can lift it. If there are 150 of you in a social group, one person can make bricks, and another person can make arrowheads, and another person can weave baskets, and some other guys can go off and look for new places to live. We are made to live in groups and to solve problems, to create things together. This is why Facebook is so addictive. Because if you live in this primitive social group, you need to be in everybody else's business so you don't get kicked out of the social group. You need to know what everyone else thinks of you, and you need everyone else to approve of you. This is why Facebook is so insidious. Because it, it ties into that need. So I told you that you know, maybe school doesn't work that well. So maybe if school works well, it ties into these two needs, right? This need to be and to do with other people and this need to create and build, maybe. That's all I have. I'm here with Nathan Moore. Uh, he's a physics professor at Winona State University, and uh, he just did a talk at uh, Nerd Night called Why Does School Lunch Work Better Than School? Hi, Nathan. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be there. All right, great. Well, um, first, I was just kind of wondering, um, you know, how did you get interested in the topic? Well, so I have kids, so so I, I care I care a lot about school, um, and uh, how did I get interested in the topic? Um, so a long time ago, uh, in Winona, they, uh, set up a, a STEM elementary school. It was Jefferson elementary school. Uh, they wanted to, you know, do STEM programming. Um, so maybe not a long time, maybe eight years ago. Sure. And, um, and, uh, they asked a couple people for help in like imagining what that might be. Okay. And so in the process of trying to figure out, uh, what, what would be useful curriculum in that STEM school, uh, I got introduced to the work of Philip Aidy and Michael Scheer, and that was that was where the talk about you know school not working came from. It was this uh, longer thread of like how do people solve problems and how does problem solving ability develop, okay. and um, and so the so the, the the thread that they have is that you know um, school isn't actually necessarily designed intentionally to develop the problem solving ability, and so they have this big curriculum that um, that they actually used for a little while at Jefferson, and and maybe they still do. I haven't been there uh, lately, uh, and, and, it was, and it was intentional to develop problem-solving ability. Um, so it wasn't really school activities, right? It wasn't mapped to the curriculum. It was more like uh, working with other people on hard problems and talking about them socially. 
Um, so that's where that, that whole thread about like school and school lunch um, came from. So they make the, they make the case that, that um, you know, physiological development is kind of like obvious and necessary and intellectual development, you know, it, it certainly proceeds if you stimulate it, but, but without stimulation, it's not actually sometimes necessary and so it doesn't develop. Okay. Okay. That's kind of interesting that we have a school right here in town that's kind of trying to tackle these issues, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really exciting when we had those conversations initially. Uh, I mean, everything, everything changes after eight years, right? right? But it was, but it was a fun conversation to have then. Okay, great. Um, I mean, do you personally, do you think that uh, school would work better if it was like more geared towards the individual or I'm sorry, more geared towards the group rather than the individual, you know, working together, things like that? Or or does that kind of not play into it? Well, so so uh, in other cultures, um, the idea of individual success is is somewhat foreign. Uh, we have we I mean, uh, like I said in the talk, I mentioned the talk sometimes. Um, we have students who come from other cultures, and there, you know, when you succeed, it's the tribe. It's it's a group of people. It's the class that succeeds. It's like individual people succeeding is not the way the culture is structured, right? There's this interdependence in other cultures. Um, and that can be a real shock for some students who come here uh, from other cultures, and suddenly, you know, you're not supposed to talk to other people on a test. Um, there's this there's this classic story when Eric Mazur was here a couple of years ago about people you know taking a multiple choice test and when they got the answer right like the whole table cheered because it was like a oh, wow. the multiple choice test was structured was structured as a as a scratch off and and so the you know this group of four or seven students was working together on this on this scratch off right uh, I mean if you think about anything in the corporate world it's never like one guy sitting alone in a cubicle right yeah. you you need other people most problems are too big for you to handle on your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you think about it like that, it almost seems obvious, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to be my own surgeon. I don't want to be my own metallurgist, right? right? right. We live in a complex society, so. Right, and we have to work together, so. Yeah. And then you talked a lot about uh, design, you know, like uh, uh, the way we're physically designed, you know, and tackling those kind of problems, and then, you know, intellectually uh, tackling school. Um do you think your background in physics like plays into that you, that view, or? Um, well, you know, in physics, you're always trying to tell stories that are compelling, and so the story I told about biceps and like what is your arm designed to do, right? I mean, that's that's in part a story I tell just to motivate like torque to make torque actually seem like something that's useful. Okay. Uh, but most you know most physical relationships and physical ideas that you develop, like in physics or in chemistry and biology. They're, they're really compelling, right? We're built to do certain things. Our right. bodies are built to do certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like the shape of a frog or the shape of a cow. You can tell just right. from, like, the way they're shaped that, you know, cows aren't made for jumping right. <laughs> and frogs aren't made for, you know, having a, a, a digester built in the middle of them. So, right. um, so yeah. Okay. And then uh, is there something, anything specific that you personally think that we could do better at school or, or anything like that? Well, do you have any big solutions? <laughs> so, so like I said at the start of the talk, I, I, you know, I only, I, I'm a college teacher. I don't have a lot of, you know, experience in the primary classroom, right. um, you know, aside from 13 years long ago. So, so I, I don't really want to swoop in and say I know how to solve it because I don't. Uh, but teachers are professionals, and they work really hard. Uh, they, I, I, um, 
So, so I've heard in China, uh, teachers uh, teach about half as much as they do in the U.S. And the other half of the time is meant for, you know, reflection with other teachers and observing other teachers, developing curriculum, right? So, so in, uh, I've heard that in China, uh, teachers are, are closer to, like, a college professor or like a doctor's office where you have all this, well, I don't know about doctor's offices, right? But you have all this extra time to, to, to think about what you're doing and try and intentionally improve. Um, and so, I mean, so that I I could see as valuable, but again, I'm an outsider to the primary system, so I don't really, I don't really know. Um, and, you know, we, we talked a little bit about how, you know, people are structured to work with each other mm-hmm. and to work in groups. Um, you know, that, that obviously happens in the primary setting, but all of the standardized testing that's set up is, you know, certainly doesn't value that. Right. Um, and, you know, the other thing about standardized testing is, is I, you know, I shouldn't really care. And, and, and I, don't, I don't know if you should really care. Uh, I mean, that's a measurement that, that a teacher probably cares a lot about, right? Because it's a reflection of, you know, how the class developed when the teacher is working with those children. But I don't know if that's something that we should really publish in the paper, oh, right? Nice. You know, like in the yeah. same way that, you know, you don't publish your cholesterol score in the paper and I don't, you know, publish my, you know, genetic indicators for congenital disease in the paper. Uh, I mean, that's that's like an internal measurement that a teacher makes in, in their classroom. So. It's it's weird to me that that it becomes this this thing that we have to know. Everybody has to know how our school measures up to some other school. Right. Um, I, I I'm I don't like that idea. Yeah. I'm not saying I know how to solve it. I'm not saying we have to change mm-hmm. it, right? Because maybe there's some good things that testing actually brings, right? Sure. But um, but it seems misplaced, right? That every every year the Winona Daily News publishes the test rankings for every school and every grade, right? right. Um, it seems like that's that's professional information, and it's so open to being manipulated and right. misrepresented. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's not good. Hmm. Well, I like that thought, that that should be kept within the realm of, you know, the teacher and how they're doing instead of the public. I like that thought. Maybe we'll leave with that. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> that was really good. Don't ask any questions about the man behind the curtain, huh? Right. <laughs> Well, um, it was a pleasure talking with you. Um, I'm here with Nathan Moore. He's a physics professor at Winona State University, and he just did a nerd night talk down at Ads here. And uh, thanks so much for joining us today, Nathan. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again to Nathan Moore for joining us today on Culture Click. For more information on Nerd Night Winona, just follow the Nerd Night Winona Facebook page. To keep up on all things Winona and the surrounding area, tune into Culture Click, Thursdays at 1230, right here on 89.5 KQAL. I'm Bill Stoneberg, and we've just heard from Nathan Moore on Culture Click. Creating cultural awareness and understanding. You've been listening to Culture Click. Support for Culture Click is made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Culture Click is produced by KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University. For more information, look us up on the web at kqal.org. And thanks for listening to Culture Click. Are you interested in all things Winona and the surrounding area? Find podcasts of Culture Click and all your favorite KQAL shows by going to kqal.org and looking for program archives under the media tab. Culture Click is made possible by a grant from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.